Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I accidentally insult people's shifgrathor all the time. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I have never had a sour beer for breakfast, except for that year that I lived in Ukraine, when I had them all the damn time. <laughs> so, welcome to Space the Nation, where we talk about IR and science fiction and other stuff. We are planning a bunch of really cool things. Our next text is Galaxy Quest, which should be really, really fun. It's obviously a really fun By movie. By Grapthar's Hammer, I would hope so, yes. <laughs> then we're doing Obama's favorite science fiction book, The Three-Body Problem, mm-hmm. uh, which is our first sort of non-Western foray mm-hmm. uh, into sci-fi. And then Dan's pick, the movie <laughs> Arrival. I am already which, looking forward to this because I know we disagree about it, so this is going to be good. Which I did not particularly enjoy the first time I saw it, okay. but the soundtrack is quite, quite good, and I listened to it actually fairly often. Hmm. Anyway, we are also, you know, going to be taking suggestions from you. And we are also almost at 100 paying patrons. And this is important because when we hit 100, we will be doing a special patrons only show, a topic chosen by those patrons. If you want to be one of those patrons, uh, go to patreon.com slash space the nation and join. We would be happy to have you. And, you know, we're looking forward to this patrons only podcast at some point. And now let's get to our text for this week, which is Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. And actually, before we get started into why we chose this, I am going to admit straight up, I thought I had read this book. (laughs) (laughs) I believe I did not. Um, Or I read it so deep into my drinking days that I have no memory of it. I think it is possible that I read the first like few chapters and just couldn't get into it, which Ah. I know, Dan, you experienced that phenomenon. So this is interesting. Yes, I had the same issue, which is I so I confess I am a bad, bad nerd, which is to say I had I've obviously heard of The Left Hand of Darkness, but I'd never read it. Anna was very excited about this. So I started reading it and then I started trying to read it again. And then I started trying to read it yet again. And I'm not going to lie. The first 50 pages are a bit of a slog as you know for the for the uninitiated reader but then i couldn't stop it is a more i'm going to keep using the word subtle with this book mm. but it's also a really funny book mm-hmm. in a way like there's more humor in it than i think ursula k Le Guin gets credit for like because the reason we chose this book to get to that point is that it is in the canon. Yes. You know, uh, it, we're not using it for canon fodder. I believe it belongs in the canon. I think we're probably both agreed on that. But it has this reputation for being an incredibly groundbreaking piece of right. science fiction. While there are criticisms of the book from a feminist LGBTQ perspective, it is also embraced by many in that community. Mm-hmm. The afterwards in my version of the book was written by uh, Charlie Jane Anders, who is a trans woman who's who's written a bunch of really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend people seek out her work. And she points to a particular passage, which we'll probably talk about more mm-hmm. in the book, where Ginley I recognizes the difference between himself and Estrovan mm-hmm. and recognizes it and embraces it and fully accepts it. Hmm. And she talks about how that's what she always wanted, you know, as a trans person right. to be seen, to be fully seen mm-hmm. and fully accepted. And I, I think that's a pretty moving interpretation of that scene and i also like i said i hope we talk about it more it's a really wonderful scene um i did want to say i think (laughs) that 
It is in some ways not the book people might expect when we talk about it as a piece of feminist science fiction. Go on. Because it is not it is not a simple critique of gender. That is a safe statement. Indeed, you know, you can even go further than that and point out that normally when you talk about how do I put this? When you normally talk about a a work of feminist science fiction, for lack of a better way of putting it, you would expect there to be women in the book. Um, <laughs> and there is, yes, I literally is, believe, yes. one woman who maybe like, let's just, this does not, how do I put this? The Bechdel rule does not apply to this book, or or it doesn't. Unless it, it doesn't you consider the people in the book who are sometimes women, and right, there yes. are presentations of women by this species in the book. But it is a very, again, just But it subtle, still doesn't meet that critique. Bechdel test under that criteria. No, no, you're right. You're, you, are, you are correct. Yes. They don't talk to each other. Right, the, exactly. the women in this book do not talk to each other. Yeah. But it is an incredibly textured and subtle critique yeah. of, of gender norms, mm-hmm. I think. It does not do the thing that a lot of feminist science fiction does, which, again, has, has women in it, and does some kind of just reversal yeah. of roles. Which is, you know, a, a fine experiment to do, and you can get a lot of interesting things out of it. Also, like um, a book that I really want us to do is Ammonite, which is about a world without men, and it all takes on sort of some interesting IR themes, actually, in terms of war. Mm-hmm. But like that is a book of all women, right? And that you can see, of course, that would be a gender critique book. And this one does not do that. No, I have to say, the, I enjoyed the book in the end, but the thing I actually, I think, enjoyed the most was Le Guin's introduction to the book, at least in the Penguin Classics edition that I have, in which she made a really brilliant point that was something that I had not thought about really in quite that way, which is she talks about what she thinks science fiction is and what it's not. And her point being that a lot of people tend to assume that what science fiction is is extrapolation. It's futurism, for lack of a better way of putting it. It mm-hmm. says, okay, let's take some interesting trend now, extrapolate it further, and then see what society would look like. Sort of a Black Mirror style thing. And I think, by the way, to be fair, that can be done relatively well. But her point is that science fiction is more like a counterfactual. Well, her science Her fiction. science fiction is a counterfactual world. It is what it, if... Is a, it, I love how she compares it like like to sort of traditional lab experiments right. to Schrodinger experiments. Yes, like, yes, exactly. It is a really cool analogy. And again, I like her essay too. And I, it is it also, it's funnier than you would think. Yes. Um, she has this line about how uh, traditional science fiction and the way that it's like lab experiments, a prediction is made. Method and results much resemble those of a scientist who feeds large doses of purified concentrated food ad- additive to mice in order to predict what may happen to people who eat it in small quantities for a long time. The outcome seems almost inevitably to be cancer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then she has a line later where she's talking about some people find that kind of sci-fi to be pressing. And she goes on, Almost anything carried to its logical extreme becomes depressing, if not carcinogenic. So <laughs> yes. she has some really mordant wit to her that, again, like maybe that's something people talk about with in respect to her novels. But it's sort of I've I think one of the reasons why I maybe put this down mm-hmm. is that I felt like I'm not going to wind up enjoying this. Right. Like this is going to be a slog. And I, I guess I want to tell people, like, no, like, well, I, <laughs> it's, so I, she's actually, yeah, it actually winds up being a pretty fun read. Yes, I but say. I don't want to, I don't want to lie to people. I do think that the the start of this book is a difficult slog, in no, in no small part because of the subtlety that you talk about, which is 
Le Guin is not taking a hammer and bashing you over the head in terms of what is going on. You really have to do a little bit of it, much like The Expanse, I would actually point out as well, because mm-hmm. a lot of people complained with the pilot of The Expanse and for the first season that it was you couldn't understand what the Belters were saying. Things went unexplained at times. It, it, it took some effort to figure out what the dynamics were. And I would argue that is also true with, with this novel. And by the way, I, and that means that in some ways reading the first 30 pages again of this novel is actually very rewarding because you realize the journey that Genli Ai has taken throughout the, the course of the novel. And in terms of the Morton Wit, the, the thing I loved that she wrote in the introduction when she, when she said, prediction is the business of prophets, clairvoyants, and futurologists. It is not the business of novelists. A novelist's business is lying. I want to point out how this introduction is so diametrically opposed to Orson Scott Card. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. it is just like the opposite yeah. way of looking at one's work. Right. Um, for one thing, like she's incredibly humble about it. Mm-hmm. I think, or just straightforward. I wouldn't say humble. She's just like, this is what I did. Right. You know, um, here is what I do. She doesn't talk about its influence. She doesn't talk about like uh, how important it is, which yeah. is actually the thing that Orson Scott Card does. Right. And also, as I recall, Orson Scott Card talks about he is doing the experiment thing. He is extrapolating from current events yes. to the future. Mm-hmm. And and indeed, the anti-Obama column that he wrote <laughs> is exactly that. It's mm-hmm. him sort of it's saying he can see what Obama would do, which is fascism, apparently. It's a slippery slope. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. And she is like, no. I mean, her line, I, I am merely observing. Mm-hmm. In particular, devious thought experiment manner, proper to science fiction. She's talking about the androgynous and how she's not predicting androgyny. Mm -hmm. If you look at us at certain odd times of day in certain weathers, we are already androgynous. (laughs) I I think that's a really, and I found myself thinking about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, because she's definitely seeing something in our culture that she wants us to dive further into. Right. And I think Ginley is like is definitely like our avatar, and and something I know you mentioned that I both like about the book, but as you say, makes it hard going at first, mm-hmm. is that he is our avatar, yeah. and you understand only as much as he does. <laughs> right. No, and and that's the way Le Guin structures the book, which is we do eventually get different mm-hmm. points of view in the book. You know, we do there are mm-hmm. chapters written from Estrovan's perspective, for example, but for the first half of the book, I think. Primarily going through Genli eyes, uh, we are we are reading this through Genli eyes eyes, as it were. And the the other thing I would add about this, by the way, is that it one thing that this novel does solve for me, which is I mean, this is a problem not just of sci-fi but of any novel, is the narrator problem, which mm-hmm. is almost all novels have a narrator, you know, that are told from from a, a third-person perspective are written in a first-person perspective from a character's point of view, usually take the form of some sort of narrator who is not the protagonist, but rather observing the protagonist or observing what is going on. And very often that character is not terribly interesting because their their job is to be the external observer. And in this case, you know, what Le Guin did, which I really was impressed by, was made the the narrator in this case someone who was clearly flawed, someone who, despite being two years on a planet, had quite figured things out, and someone who figures things out much as the reader does as the book goes along. Is this a postmodern novel? I think maybe so. I mean, it is an unreliable narrator, and the novel explores subjectivity. Like, 
the whole novel is about subjectivity, which is what we'll get to in a bit. So the novel is about, about subjectivity, how... but I don't know. So this is where I don't know if the no, I don't know if the narrator is unreliable. I I believe everything that Genliai is saying in terms of this is how Genliai is interpreting. But what's I think going that's on. the purpose of an unreliable narrator. Okay. It's not that the narrator is lying to okay, you. Yeah. No, this. I mean, right. sometimes I it's the narrator is lying to you, but I think that in a well executed piece of work that's exploring this this idea of subjectivity. The point isn't that the narrator is unreliable because it's a malicious thing or an intentional thing. He, the narrator is unreliable because we are all unreliable narrators. And that is one of the things that the book puts forward. Yes. We are all unreliable narrators. We all are trapped in the framework that we were born into. Yeah, yeah. And it is our job mm-hmm. to try and see that framework. And that is Ginley's journey. That is Estrovan's journey is to see the place that they come from and recognize like what, how it's affecting their vision. Yeah. No. Okay. That's a fair, yes, I think that's a, a, a fair way of All right. But enough sort of overview. Yeah. Let us get into the plot. Dan. Okay. Um, before we talk about the plot, I actually think it might be better to even just sort of talk about the setup because that's worth thinking about. Um, the book is told primarily from the point of view, as we've said, of, of Genli Ai, an envoy of color from the Ecumen, which is a Pacific Federation of 83 humanoid planets. He is on the planet called Gethin, or he refers to it as Winter, to convince them to join the Ecumen. Gethin is different from Earth in a number of important ways. In no particular order, um, we would go with the following. One, it's much colder on Gethin than it is uh, on Earth, or Terra in the, the language of the novel. There are two countries, Carhide and Orgota. The former is a relatively open monarchy, somewhat vulnerable to the whims of the king. The latter is more of a nation state. Uh, it's got an barbarian bureaucracy, it's got a secret police, and it definitely has stronger nationalist sentiments. There is no history or even comprehension of war uh, between Carhide and Orgota, although there have been some sort of border skirmishes. There is no understanding of flight, uh, much less space flight. And, oh, this is a thing. Because there are no birds. Because there are actually, no birds. very important. Yes, that's true. There are no birds. No birds. And, oh, this is a thing. Uh, there is no gender, as we here on Earth comprehend it. Rather, Gathenians are asexual and androgynous for 26 days of the lunar cycle, uh, after which they enter a stage called Kemmer, uh, which is a period of sexual excitement during which they can either adopt male or female genital characteristics, depending on the context. Gathenians do keep the female gender if they are impregnated during the Kemmer period until birthing a child, but otherwise revert back to asexuality and androgynous uh, form. There is also no rape, and there is no incest taboo uh, among siblings, uh, although there is apparently across generations. On a, you know, just out of curiosity, which of those differences stands out for you? It's the winter part. It's such a cold place. (laughs) No, um, although it's funny, there is a report back to the ecumen written by the single actual female character in the book, Mm -hmm. um, where she posits a relationship between the climate of the planet um, and the species, although mostly she, she writes about how perhaps it is the cold weather that have kept them from from discovering war. Yeah, that was bullshit. Um, I just want to be very clear. That's bullshit. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. But she also ponders the... Re- so one of... This book is part of what is called the Hainish Cycle, mm-hmm. which is a, a universe... And in this universe, among other things, um, there's telepathy. Mm-hmm. And also there is knowledge that certain worlds have been seeded in the past. Right. Um, Including consciously, Earth, I yeah. Yes, as experiments mm-hmm. of some kind. And so she indicates that this androgyny is the result of a conscious experiment. Mm-hmm. 
and wonders why that might be. <laughs> it doesn't come up with any good answers, yeah. I don't think. And yes, I mean, it's what the book is known for. Uh, it's, it is a difficult thing to comprehend. I did wind up thinking about Ender's Game a lot while reading this. Oh, really? Because I think, ironically, it explores some really similar themes hmm. in terms of subjectivity, in terms of yeah. imagining a completely alien way of thinking. Right, and I would add that's in some ways some of the best parts of, of Card's novel, but definitely something. Yeah, we, I think we agreed on that yeah. when we were we, when agree. we discussed it. And this just goes even deeper into this completely alien way of thinking. Obviously, there's sort of a little, in a way, essentialism going on here. Yeah. In that, I mean, she, she's exploring how much of sexuality is constructed. Mm-hmm. I, I also will point out that the fact that there is no rape uh, comes from the being in heat right. idea that there's only consensual sex. Right. I would say, And you only yeah. have sex during your heat cycle. Right. I would say it was two things. I, to be fair, I, I think first it's the fact that when when Gathenians are not in, in Kemmer, it just wouldn't occur to them. They're, they're asexual. Right. But also that when they are in Kemmer, the norm is... It's, it, you know, there are... Whatever goes. Exactly, basically. Yes. <laughs> you know. Um, Although it's also interesting that there's no homosexuality. Yes. Uh, I think they mentioned, I think there was a sentence in there saying that it was possible, but like it was very rare or something. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. I think that's also true. And it's also possible to choose the gender that you come into in camera through manipulation of hormones, right. but also that that is rare. Right. So it is obviously a thing that comes out throughout the book. I was interested (laughs) in the way that it is threaded through the book, but the book is about kind of something even bigger than that. Yes. Like I said before. No, I would agree. The book book is about intersubjective understanding and the ways in which gender play on that. But again, the, the so we'll let's get into the plot. But like again, the thing I was impressed by reading this was the ways in which Le Guin did not take a hammer and bang away on this theme. That it's a theme that sort of slowly, subtly emerges. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on. Right. So uh, Genliai is what is called a mobile. Uh, he is trying to gain an audience with the Carhide King Argavin uh, by working his diplomatic charms on the Carhideish uh, Prime Minister Estrovin. And he finds himself somewhat frustrated and irritated in dealing with Estrovin. An audience has been arranged, but the night before Estrovin meets with Ai, uh, Estrovin tells him that he can no longer support Ai's mission with the king. I is somewhat taken aback and obviously mildly put out with Estrovin for this last-minute slight. The next day, I learns that Estrovin has been ousted as prime minister and stands accused of treason. He has been replaced by Tybe, who wants to adopt a more hawkish posture toward both Orgota and the Ecumen. Uh, the king refuses I's entreaties to enjoin the Ecumen. Anna, I'm not going to lie. As I said, the first part of this book was a bit of a slog for me. There were a lot of names, a lot of terms. It, it took me a couple of times to figure out what the hell, you know, she was talking about. And yet, as I understand it, actually, one of the bigger controversies involving this book was Le Guin's decision to have I use male pronouns to describe Gathenians rather than come up with a new term, as it were. I would say this is explicitly Ginley's decision Mm -hmm. to use male pronouns. Um, He actually mentions it at the beginning of the book. And I think it's an intentional thing by... Like when mm-hmm. um, to call attention to what our norms are and our ability inability to think beyond norms. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to say I think it's really clever that Genley turns out to be black. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because it is it shows us our how whiteness is the is the default in so many ways. Because he doesn't that isn't revealed until a little bit into the book. Yeah. And I did have the thing where I was like, oh yeah, you know, I guess when I was picturing him in my head, pictured a white guy because because white supremacy is a thing. Like I pictured a white guy, uh, and it turns out though his his color is helpful to blending in on the planet. Mm-hmm. That that they are um, a range of color, but mostly dark. I think. Which- I'm not going to lie, again, doesn't entirely make sense to me, given the cold. Especially on a snowy, yeah. I mean, like, literally, you, you know, you get white people in cold right. weather. Right, that's that's what I'm trying to say, yes. <laughs> Although he does mention that his flat nose, mm-hmm. you know, which is a trait of those from the warmer climes, mm-hmm. disturbs people or they think it's broken. Hmm. I think that's kind of funny. No. I will also give you a pro tip on names. Oh, good, uh, good. Which I am terrible with names, both in real life and in literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I have learned to do is the first time I come across a name in almost anything that I'm reading that's longer than like 20 pages mm-hmm. is I highlight it in like a, a color that's different than I'm using for the rest of the book hmm. or the rest of the piece. Ah. And then... When I see a name, I can like flip through the first part of the book yeah. and find the highlighted. And, and the, you know, obviously when someone's first introduced, it, they get a little like aside about who that person yeah. is. So pro tip, it took me decades. <laughs> that is good. Out. This is where we can geek out. You use highlighters. I use the four color pen. Um, but oh, uh, but well, I, can devote, actually, I can devote a different color to that very thing. So, so actually, I use a four color pen. <gasps> I, um, yeah, I know. Oh, I'm so in love right now. <laughs> um, uh, I, although sometimes I kind of forget what I'm doing and don't always like stay true to the colors that I've sort of decided. Um, and what I do with the names though, is I put a square around them Oh, okay. so that they stand out even from whatever else okay. I'm highlighting and we can really move on. Now. Yes. All right. <laughs> but I'm glad we bared our souls on this sort Except of thing. I'll just point out, Ginley is sexist. That is actually a a fairly strong point in the book. Yes, no, he makes it very clear. It's not just that he's sexist. He makes it very clear in the first 30 pages. He doesn't like Estervin. He doesn't like Todd. He doesn't like what he describes as the feminine jockeying for power, mm-hmm. the sort of gossip. Anytime yeah. something happens that he doesn't like, it's usually um, ascribed to the female traits. Yes, that is uh, of the Gethian, That is absolutely correct. Gethians. Yeah. Um, so. Okay, so I, having been thwarted by the king, decides to travel to what is called a fastness uh, steeped in the Honderada religion to seek a foretelling or a prophecy. Basically, these people can tell him in theory of the future, it provided the question is is uh, well-defined. He asks whether Carhide will be part of the Ecumen in five years. He is told yes. Um, he therefore decides to travel a little more and eventually uh, attempts to enter uh, Orgota uh, and leave Carhide. Esservin, meanwhile, uh, being exiled, has to flee Carhide for Orgota before Tybe can execute him. While there, he falls into league with the open trade faction of the Commensal, which is the governance structure of Orgota, and advocates that they let I enter Orgota as well. The Orgotans at first seem more direct and friendly toward Aie. He explains his role as a mobile. Uh, he explains that there are others in the solar system who could land if he gives them the proper signal, which is a surprise to them. Uh, Estrovin warns I, however, not to trust the Orgota, but I does not listen to him. In fact, I is again continues to be relatively put out with Estrovin and the fact that he's even uh, around. Sure enough, however, I is arrested and sent to an ice prison where he is treated as a pervert and subject to drugs that have an increasingly debilitating effect on him. Anna, I did like how this sequence played on my human desire for the familiar. As I said, I was not a huge fan initially of the car hide sections, 
And I wanted to like Orgota more, frankly, because it resembled a nation state that I recognized. I was not expecting the whole secret police angle. I believe they're called the Sarf, which in retrospect was obvious. This is, in my opinion, the best kind of plot twist, the kind that you don't expect. And then in retrospect, think, yes, I am an idiot. I should have seen that coming. I also really liked this section. Again, I think she she brings the reader into Ginley's point of view, Mm -hmm. right? Like he wants to like this place, so we want to like this place. Um, He does not see he's being manipulated. We do not see he's being manipulated until pretty, you know, far into it. Uh, The funnier parts of the book, uh, Ginley gets to know the bureaucracy, which he recognizes, right? you know, as a bureaucracy and as a familiar thing. And he is talking about one of them and he says, he was a hard, true, jovial politician whose acts of kindness served his interest and whose interest was himself. His type is pan-human. I had met him on Earth and on Hain and on Olul. I expect to meet him in hell. <laughs> just, I mean, it's a, it's a funny line, you know? And in both countries, there's a tradition of taking in uh, travelers. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's kind of guaranteed passage and, and getting a, a roof over their head and, yeah. and food. It's sort of interesting. Um, anyway, so in Orgota, Ginley is made warm for the first time. <laughs> they, were, they say uh, that they were told to treat him as a pregnant woman um, and to make him comfortable. Which, again, you know, we're, we're ragging on Gedley a lot, but to be fair, if I was living in a place full-time where, like, the warmest it got was, what, maybe 30 degrees, you know, I, I, yeah. I wouldn't be necessarily all that happy either. Um, uh, and, and so he says there are trade-offs for, like, this comfort, right. and there are trade-offs for the bureaucracy, and one of them is actually he notices that things are a little more shoddily made mm-hmm. in this country, mass-produced. Right. Um, and he says, elegance is a small price to pay for enlightenment which I thought was really funny, and I'm not sure if it's true. Um, <laughs> but actually, <laughs> but, you know, we're... Ex- but I, I do want to go on to your point, which I really thought was a good one about um, the idea that the one one thing in the culture of Gethin is the idea that there's a warmness to strangers, you know, that strangers are taken in. And I think in some ways the best way, the best sequence where you get that is Genley's description where he is taken to the ice prison, where mm-hmm. he's freezing, they're all freezing because they're all basically as near as I can determine, naked in a in the back of a mm-hmm. truck. And, like, the description of how they, they sort of unconsciously sleep in such a way as to protect the weak, I thought, was, was actually was very affecting. Yeah, I, and yes, I agree. And that also was a pretty horrific uh, section of the book. Yes. I found myself, again, she's so good at bringing us into his point of view that when he suffers, we suffer. Right. And just remarkable writing. Um, there is also a, a Gethin Matahari in this section. So, oh, that's the right. The Sarf, yes, where he tries to seduce Estravan. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yes. <laughs> and it turns out we learned something in this interaction mm-hmm. because you can resist Kimmer. Yes. Um, and he says something that's really, really funny. So he, so this, so Guam, who is trying to seduce uh, Estravan. Um, Guam is very beautiful in Kimmer, and yeah. he counted on his beauty and his sexual insistence, knowing, I suppose, that being of the Han- Handara, I would be unlikely to use Kimmer re- reduction drugs. Mm. He forgot that de- detestation is as good as any drug. <laughs> so. That's that's fair. Actually, speaking of names, yeah. this is a, 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 a no. You know what? Never mind. We'll deal with this in the debris oh, field. They're hard names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, All right. So moving on.
So, Estervin learns that uh, I has been imprisoned. Uh, he decides to go north and rescue him, which he is able to do, because uh, the prison is not terribly well guarded, because essentially the elements, as it were, are the best guard. Estervin and I decide to trek by foot across the Gobrin Ice, uh, which is, I believe, the Gathenian equivalent of the Arctic, to cross back into Carhide and for I to signal his ship before he talks to any more heads of state. It is during this trip, which takes months, that Estervan and I finally and truly get to know each other. Um, and I do not mean in a biblical way. I mean in the intersubjective understanding way. I learned that Estervan was not playing games with him at any point. I, meanwhile, teaches Estervan mind speech, which is a form of telepathic communication in which deceit is not possible. Estervan, interestingly, finds it painful, and this is touching because I communicates to him as if he were Estervan's dead brother, Arik. On it, this really was, for me, the most affecting and straightforward portion of the book. Um, and in some ways, it's the payoff for the first 50 pages of trying to understand what the heck is going on. I, I thought it might be the best part where those the gender and IR components fused. What say you? I, I agree. It is where the book kind of comes together mm-hmm. in, a, in a very real way. And in the, one of another theme in the book is sort of coming together and, again, not with any sexual reference. And I also really liked that they didn't have sex. Yes, I mean, I it, we've we've mentioned this in other other books and other contexts that it is really nice. Yeah. We're not opposed <laughs> to sex to be very clear, but like this No, yes, no, I'm pro sex, yeah. but it is it is can be it can be a crutch. Right. And her depiction of their love for each other mm. in a platonic way. Right. I tried to puzzle out, like, how is it that he speaks to Estrovin in the voice of his dead brother? And I wonder if it is this um, love. Yes, that's no. That was the 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 takeaway I got was that I was I was surprised that that was how Le Guin wrote it because I'm like, who? I would assume this would be another level of of intimacy, but in some ways, it actually is the highest level of intimacy because we know, among other things, that Estrovin and his brother actually procreated, I believe, and mm-hmm. and had a child, and so in some ways, that's the highest honor Estrovin can pay I is that that's how he thinks of him. It is the significant, it shows the significance of his relationship right. to I. Exactly. It reminded me a little bit in a perhaps surprising way of The Terror, which is Dan Simmons' book about um, the lost uh, exploration uh, to the Arctic by Sir Franklin, I believe. Okay. A ship that was um, only recently recovered, hmm. actually. For a long time, it was genuinely a lost ship. There's a very good AMC um, miniseries, or it's not a miniseries, it's a series um, based on the book. Hmm. And how it reminded me of it is in its depiction of the Arctic, which is basically what they're, where they are, as a beautiful and terrifying place and a place where you would think everything looks alike. You would think it is nothing but whiteness, mm. but actually there is subtlety, mm-hmm. there are differences, um, there are challenges. I found myself wondering, she's such a you know methodical writer, an intentional writer, like why would you set this revelation about their relationship in this circumstance beyond just, oh, they're in, they're uh, in extreme situation. And of course, in extreme situations, you, you get to know people. And I think it has to do with sameness and difference. Hmm. Um, the idea of recognizing difference, both in a landscape, you know, something that looks the same, but, but can have wide differences. And then in the way that Ginley and Estervan have to work together and they each bring different strengths, like literally different strengths um, to the project and different attitudes. And it need, they need to have both to get through it. Yes. They really do. And, and um, this is worth pointing yeah. out because this, it's this section of the book that you be that, first of all, as I said, Le Guin starts by primarily talking, writing from a, Genley Eye's point of view. 
we then start to, you know, there's a couple of interstitial chapters, but then we start to also get into Estrovan's um, point of view. And this is the first time we see, for lack of a way of putting it, Genli's strengths as well as his flaws. I mean, most of the book is about him not comprehending what's going on and not really being clear what strengths he brings to the table. And among the strengths he brings to the table is actual strength, among other things, um, physical strength. But And, and this is where he discovers uh, his subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like this is it's a very yeah. powerful scene. It is the scene uh, in, in which that Charlie Jane Anders cites is, is the part where she saw herself. Mm-hmm. And, and there's it's portrayed in two different ways. We see it from Ginley's yeah. point of view and we see it from Estrin's yes. point of view. And the way that we see it from Estrin's point of view sort of underscores that he's kind of a sexist. Um, <laughs> he, but he realizes his lack of knowledge. Yes. Uh, There's Estrin asks him, what are, yes, what are, what are women like? And he realizes yeah. <laughs> he has no idea. Yeah. And in a sense, women are more alien to me than you are. <laughs> With you, I share one sex anyhow. And then he, there's that trails off. And he says, Estrovin looked away and laughed, rueful and uneasy. And I would say that actually the reason why that's a weird, that that lands badly, mm-hmm. is that it is not as simple as sometimes they're men and sometimes they're women. Mm-hmm. I, I believe yes, I think that's, that, that's sort of one of the things that she's saying, Right. you know, that the, there is true androgyny here. Right. It's not just a part time thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, no, I think I, that, the most interesting part of, I think, the, the Le Guin's construction is not just the idea of there's asexuality and then there's Kemmer. It's also the idea that the Gathenians really honestly do not care which gender they wind up adopting during Kemmer. That was a thing I found mm-hmm. the most fa- in some ways it's the most the most revolutionary way of thinking about it. And this section sort of points out that Ginley has been thinking of people as he. Yeah. He has been like, so when they are not, and it's sort of like how white people might assume that Ginley is white because we, she doesn't say what color he is. Mm-hmm. Their default assumption a lot of the time is that it's people who, we, when we don't hear what color they are, we assume they're white. Mm-hmm. Ginley g- defaults to male. Yeah. And he sees this as most of the time they're men and every once in a while some of them become women. Right. And in this scene, we kind of see him start to grapple with, no, that's not how it is. They are always who they are. Mm -hmm. And and there are male and female uh, characteristics, but they are blended. They are their own thing. Right. And furthermore, I think the best way to put it is that even trying to look at this weirdly through the lens of gender from the point of view of Genli Ai is reductive and actually impairs his understanding. Which is to say, as you point, and then, the, the default is male. That's absolutely correct. And I think that, that blinds him. But but even to think about it in terms of male or female, I think conf- is actually confusing to him. And in some ways, therefore, indicts the reader because that's how we're also, we're also mm-hmm. going to think about it. There's no denying that. And then there's another section, which is in one of their late night talks, uh, not from Esther's point of view, again, from Ginley's point of view. And it's the section that Charlie Jane Anders cites as being something revelatory to her and resonating with her. For it seemed to me, and I think to him, although he uses him there, that it was from the sexual tension between us, admitted now and understood, but not assaged, that the great and sudden assurance of friendship between us rose, a friendship so much needed by both of us in our exile and already so well proved in the days and nights of our bitter journey, that it might as well be called now as later, love. Mm. But it was the differences between us, not from the affinities and likenesses, but from the difference that love came. And it itself was a bridge, the only bridge, across what divided us. For us to meet sexually would be for us to meet once more as aliens. We had touched in the only way we could touch. We left it at that. I do not know if we were right. Hmm. 
it's a beautiful passage. And I believe this is sort of a place where he realizes like Estrovan is who he is. I think just something that occurred to me as you were reading was that it also might explain why the mind speech was a relatively limited thing between the two of them, because in some ways that also mm-hmm. is an alien form of, you know, it, it, it's the Terran form of communication, as it were. But it also might explain why they couldn't go too far on that level as well, even though it was a signal of intimacy, it would explain why there were limits to it. Anyway, that level of acceptance and that ability to love someone completely in their difference. Right is a beautiful concept Mm -hmm. um and she describes it so well and i actually like i didn't get teary reading it the first time but like just now i was like wow that's you know that's that's really good that's really good i did we did we not talked about something that we both mentioned to each other offline Mm -hmm. which is whether or not this would make a good movie or tv (laughs) show (laughs) um the ice journey is the part where i was like well this could be kind of a good scene or section in a movie it's visual you know there's there are challenges there are physical challenges to overcome so you get to see them doing stuff Mm -hmm. it's not just all in people's heads but in general i think this would probably be a terrible movie like it's just it's so interior i mm, i don't know the the problem i had was the casting which is i kept (laughs) i'm not gonna lie i apologize like i was like Okay, I don't think Tilda Swinton can play every role, you know, or Asia Kate Dillon or Timothy Chalamet or, you know, like I kept thinking of like, you know, where would be the uh, what would be the the roles that would do Who it. can be appropriately androgynous. Exactly, basically. So like, I mean, the yeah. problem is, is that, you know, again, the thing about good science fiction is that you can imagine the world as you are reading it. If you are going to turn this into a film, you do have to deal with the corporeal forms that we are. The only way I could actually see maybe doing it weirdly would be if it was animated. That might be an interesting way of in which that could That's go. That's an interesting choice. I did also think that Game of Thrones wound up being able to get a lot out of palace intrigue, mm-hmm. and that is the main plot um, beyond the ice journey. Yeah, but the there book. were a lot of boobs in that show as well. It's worth pointing out. I mean, just, this is true. Yes. Uh, sex position, I believe they called yes, it, rather right. than exposition. Yeah. There are scenes in which people were having sex and then speaking the plot. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they, that would be hard to do in this, in this. It would be, I mean, look at this way. If they actually tried to do that in this, it would be legitimately offensive on multiple levels. And so I really do not Indeed. urge them to do so. So let us wind up. Yes. So, our, uh, our plot discussion. the plot ends as follows. Uh, Estervin and I managed to succeed in their quest. Uh, they reach Carhide. I is able to, uh, signal for his ship to land. Estervin is betrayed by an old friend who reports him to the current prime minister. Estervin tries to flee to Orgota, uh, but is killed by border guards uh, in Genliai's arms, basically. The revelation, however, that Genliai is alive uh, does actually bring down both the Orgota government, uh, because they had claimed that he was dead, as well as the Thai regime in Karhide. Um, as Estervin had predicted, once Karhide decides to welcome the ecumen, uh, Orgota follows suit, thereby fulfilling the prophecy that was made earlier in the book. Anna, I will say how I liked how by the end of the book, I think I was as uncomfortable with human gender as the Gathenians were. But I'm also not going to lie, the ending with the Estervan's child, who is the incestuous child, threw me a bit. And this is the part where I'm not sure I can quite go that far in terms of Le Guin's imagination. I mean, the incest taboo is one of the strong... It, it's, it is the most universal taboo on Earth. And I am not really prepared to just let that go, I guess. 
I also found that problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, I did wonder if it's just Le Guin intentionally making us uncomfortable, intentionally making that society extremely different from our own. So I I, I think the logic behind the incest taboo is, um, at least as a, you know, evolutionary tactic, is that you get a bad gene pool from interbreeding. I did think about that a little bit. Um, when when they say when they don't have this taboo, I was like, oh, you know, how does that? Yeah, work? I'm not sure that like, works out terribly well, but yeah. And the best I can do is she's really pushing. This is an entirely different society. Right. I also wanted to say that I did not cry um, when uh, Estevan is killed. Mm-hmm. It's a good scene. I didn't cry. I kind of expected myself to cry because he's in. He is the character that you wind up loving, liking the most. He's the hero. He is. He is the hero of the book, and he is also never really presented in the way that Ginley is, mm-hmm. um, that you see his, fl- well, you see his flaws, but he means well, and you n- understand what he's trying to do the entire right. book, pretty much. And he's also proven correct um, in the end. I mean, his judgments of yes. what's going on, yes, it, that his judgments were, were astute and in the end, uh, extremely well-meaning. I, so I didn't cry when he died, mm-hmm. but uh, Ginley's grief got to me. Yeah. And so when he goes to visit uh, Estrin's ancestral home, uh, it is very, very affecting to me. And a great way to kind of wind up the book. Mm-hmm. So, Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this book? Yes, yes. There's a fair amount of IR in this book. And indeed, that was the thing that actually surprised me because having not read it, I knew obviously, I even I knew about the gender aspect of it, but I did not realize the significant amount of IR in this book. So I, I think there are three sort of overarching themes that that come away with this book. Um, the first is the the sort of Carhide or Gota tensions, you know, which are shot through. And indeed, the, the thing that I found most interesting and really subtle and just honestly legitimately impressive by Le Guin was, was Estevan's belief, which I think was well-founded, that had he not intervened, had he not tried to get Genli Ai to bring down um, the ecumen, that you could see where Gethin was evolving, which was that Orgoda was turning into a real nation-state. It was probably going to militarize relatively quickly, and Carhide seemed to be following suit. Indeed, that was what Tybe, the new prime minister, seemed to be doing in terms of the way that he was broadcasting and, and the sort of rhetoric, and indeed the sort of foreign policy dispute. Uh, about Very Trumpian. Yes. Uh, I did write, rhetoric. no, I literally wrote the word Trump at one point where there's a section where Genley is describing the radio broadcast, and it, it sounds very Trumpian. Um, so, you know, this is a sort of classic bipolar distribution of power. It is unsurprising that there are significant tensions between the two countries. But there's also this sort of evolutionary aspect that I think Le Guin captures, which is Carhide might have been the more open state, but it was not going to stay that way for long if Orgota continued the way it was going, um, which, as you say, it has a secret police. It it has... It doesn't just have a Weberian bureaucratic state. It also begins to look a lot more sort of quasi-authoritarian as, as time passes uh, because of information. Uh, information is kept within the hands of the state. I thought of East Germany, mm-hmm. just maybe the secret police aspect, but also the way in which they kind of pride themselves. On the surface, it looks like a relatively open society. Yeah, East Germany is not... I don't think I would have gone with East Germany. The thing I... The, what I kept thinking was Singapore. Oh, yeah. You know what? That's better. Um, yeah. Because because to be fair, Orgoda does have some degree of openness. It's not like a completely closed state, but it's more like if you poke the bear 
of the state, the state is going to, or anything that the state perceives as a threat, it is going to move extremely hard on. Um, and so that's, but 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 that said, I, I I can see why you might have thought he's German well, as well. Well, I guess what, I mean, and I guess I'll put it this way: I thought it was interesting in a sophisticated evolution of state yeah. that there is a secret police, mm-hmm. but there's sort of a, an agreement that we don't talk about it. Right. That we <laughs> that we all know there's such a thing as the secret police, yes. but one of the things that the secret police imposes upon the society is like this shared lie yeah. that we are not going to acknowledge that we have to behave in certain ways in order to escape punishment. We're just going to pretend like we're doing everything by choice, pretend like we're doing things because we want to do them. But really there's this, you know, it's, it's like the open secret yeah. of secret. Police. No, and that's a fair way so, of, of putting yeah. it. And there are also obviously Terran Gathenian tensions. There's concerns about what it would mean for them to join the ecumen. There is the sort of classic nativism that you see among both Carhide and Orgoda to, to some extent, but even more so with Orgoda. The second thing that I thought was was really interesting was the degree to which, and, and this is actually was Genli's most astute observation as an observer, I thought, was the ways in which the orgoda Carhide dispute is really way more about prestige than anything else. Um, this sort of ties into this whole concept of, of Shifgrathor, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But there is a fair amount of international relations literature um, about the idea that there are competitions among states primarily grounded on prestige. You know, we saw this during the Cold War, for example, with the space race. We see this every four years when the Olympics roll around in terms of which state is going to, you know, get the most gold medals. Or we see this with the World Cup uh, with respect to uh, to soccer. And indeed, there's a, a great book written by Lila Galati called The Price of Prestige that sort of focuses on states that engage in absurd ventures just for the sole purpose of, of prestige. And this is where I, I, again, I thought Genley's observations about this were probably the best ones that he made, um, and it seemed pretty accurate. And also why Estervin proves to be a shrewd strategist, which is the idea that if the ecumen come down, it breaks this prestige cycle um, or sort of war for prestige that would actually potentially lead to a real war. I wondered mm-hmm. if it was IR that the ecumen send one envoy. Yes, uh, I would s- that that is, that is an IR decision, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, or or I, at least a political side diplomatic decision, and therefore an IR decision. Right, and um, I think actually the the weird thing I don't I would not normally say this, but the, it does strike me that the the ecumen, as it were, do apparently mirror first contact procedures in in the Star Trek canon. Um, <laughs> but it's true. Because well, except you- for the only one person thing. Not exactly, because first of all, you know that there are investigators before that. So there's, this, there's right. a process. So there are investigators who yes. don't reveal themselves, who are essentially intelligence officials. Th- yes. th- they're not going to interfere, but they're gathering as much information as possible. And that happens in the Star Trek canon as well. And then they send someone down. Um, you're right that it's only one person in, in this, which is And there's so much, th- and, 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 and it's repeated maybe a little too much, why the thinking behind the one person. Yeah. Um, but the thinking is not wrong, which is if you send yeah. more than one, if you send a lot of people, that is going to understandably make you know states even more nervous. And, and it's also understood that this is a great risk to, to the envoy. Yes. Like it, yes. that it is understood that this is a dangerous mission, right. that it, it could, in fact, end in, in Ginley being killed and then they'll just try again. <laughs> 
Right, and not even try to get, like, like, the idea is, like, if this goes south, then you just got that ship, you know, circling the solar system for four years. They wake up, they don't get a signal, and they're like, okay, we'll go home. And, but you know, then try they again try later. again, but he says that, yeah, yeah he's trying again later. Right. All right, are we done with IR, Dan? No, there is one last IR thing I think we need to talk about, which is the first generation sort of gender and IR arguments in the book. And this is the part that I am not entirely persuaded by. Maybe this is a distinction between Le Guin and the investigator report. But in the investigator report, it is suggested that that the lack of gender distinction is one of the reasons why there is no war Mm -hmm. on this planet. And I'm sorry, that's fucking bullshit. (laughs) That is is my hot IR take on this. The idea that, that without gender, you can therefore eliminate war as we know it. Um, well, she she proves that herself. This is not Le Guin's argument. This is the argument yeah. of the investigator. Right. I mean, Le Guin is, is clearly illustrating how an androgynous world can still have war. Yes. That is the actually, plot of the novel. And I will say, now that I'm saying this out loud, I, I realize that Le Guin realizes that that's bullshit. It would make sense that the investigators would misunderstand that. But I worry that there are some who might read this book that also might come away with that interpretation. And there is no proper way that you should come away with that interpretation. Indeed, Le Guin makes it very clear that the evolution in this world absent the ecumen would have been toward war and again ammonite uh explores uh, what a all-female warring world would look like and it looks a little different you know i guess you know it can look a little different but i also appreciate and also what the fuck amazons like you know (laughs) the tradition that says that goes gender essentialist about yeah um violence i think it represents in, in IR at least that was sort of the first wave of feminist thought, which was there yeah. was a there was an agenda essentialism to it. And to be fair, I don't think that you can entirely dismiss it. I think there might be something that can be value added. Well, but from it's that, but. it's culture. I mean, this is exactly. again, this is it's, it's subject. You know, it's culture. Yeah. Like if you eliminate gender as a assumption, as a right. cultural construct, which is something that happens with the Gethian, Gethians, Gethans, Gethenians. That's what Gethenians. Yeah. You do have a culture that has no understanding of femininity and masculinity. Right. And you have no rape. And mm-hmm. there is, I believe, a correct, you know, sort of feminist approach to rape, which says it's about violence and not about sex. Yeah. But you, violence is violence. And it's part of, they do kind of refer to these people as human, as I recall. Humanoid. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. humanoid. Yeah. And, I, and I think it would, yeah, violence is something that... Well, let, it's it, it is part of evolution, right? You know, the, or let me put it this way: it, the, the very fact that you have this concept of Shifkrathor suggests to me that there would be that 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 even if you do, haven't had a all-out sort of bureaucratized war on this planet, there would have been one. Um, and I yeah. think Le Guin makes makes that clear. And so again, it was it. But now that I think about it, I agree. Le Guin doesn't have this viewpoint. It's actually the investigators who have this viewpoint, which is entirely appropriate because it's the investigators who are coming from Terran and have their own gendered views on this. So, yeah, that's fair. All right. Okay. So we've talked about themes a lot already, but let's just get real specific about it and maybe try and, uh, you know, put a period on on what we think about these themes. Uh, Dan, would you like to go first? Sure. As I said, the the theme that, that fascinated me was this concept of Shifkrathor, which again is is sort of one of these words that is rarely and and I think only briefly explicitly talked about, but but is sort of dropped in constantly so that the reader can presumably get a sense of it. Um, I think it was it's a combination of both honor 
and recognition by others of the existence of that honor is the way I inferred it, but I'm not entirely sure. The Estervan at one point says the literal translation, I think, is shadow, which it felt a touch masculine to apply Terran gender norms to it, but I'm not sure. In some ways, the idea of Shifgrathor, I think, is certainly out there, and I think you can art, you, you can apply to international relations on Earth. But the thing I liked, again, about the book was Le Guin forcing the reader to suss it out as you read it. It is fascinating, and it is a plot device, mm-hmm. um, but it it sort of escapes me like as, as a dominant theme, although I guess, you know, yeah, the, because one of her themes is how we become, you know, warlike, it's definitely there. I would say one of the things she, she suggests is that it's not gendered. Yeah, that honor and yeah. and status are not gendered. Yeah. I would add another layer to what Shifgrathor is, which is the acting of humility. Hmm. Um, at least in Carhide society, mm-hmm. you're supposed to not give advice, mm-hmm. not presume to give advice, right? And you are not to presume to know things about the other person, I think it is. I think that's because right. that is something that, that one of the scenes in the book is that, and then you see it bef- both through Estrevin and Ginley's eyes, is Estrevin gets really mad at Ginley, so he proceeds to give him advice. Yes, that's correct. That's right. And and then he does not understand why Ginley's like, oh, okay, thanks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> thanks for giving me that advice. Which is what he's been looking that. for Estrovin all along, I would add. Yeah, yes. that is what he's been looking for all along. Yes, exactly. Whereas Estrovin, there is a, the tradition for him, and again, at least in Carhide, I mean, I think it's uh, it, it translates to the other society as well, although they're less so. Yeah, a little less. Yeah, they they um, talk about waving Shifgrathor a little bit, yeah. Yeah, that you, um, do, you to give advice is to say is to boast. Mm-hmm. And so there's sort of like, um, <laughs> you know what? I just realized what the definition of Shifgrathor is. Ready? Yeah. It's a humble know. brag. There we go. There we go. You have to have honor without displaying it. You have to have status without displaying it. You have to be so, the idea is, I think, that you're so confident in your status mm-hmm. that you have no need, and so confident and secure in your status that you have no need to project it. Maybe, yeah. I yes, only just right. now thought of it, just working, It's if I thought about it a little bit more, I might decide I'm wrong. No, but let's move on to your themes, on it because okay. I think, uh, yeah. Okay, so I've said it all along. I think it's subjectivity and the ways that we have to transcend, or actually it's the ways we can't transcend our subjectivity. Mm -hmm. And the way that I would shorthand it is I think she's critiquing the idea of, oh, we're all equal. Men, women are equal. Mm -hmm. Like in in the approach to, let's say, racism that says, I'm colorblind, I don't see race. Mm -hmm. You know, like that approach to to civil rights or or diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, She's saying... No, like true acceptance of diversity is to acknowledge our differences and to be able to love those differences in like in in that monologue that that Ginley has about the differences are what enable us to love each other. And this idea that we are all kind of, you know, unreliable narrators goes throughout the book yeah. um mm-hmm. obviously just Ginley himself. Mm-hmm. I think that it's sort of implied like when he does the thing that he doesn't seem to realize he's sexist, <laughs> yeah. but he does that thing where everything he doesn't like about Gathinians mm-hmm. is described as womanly. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a really powerful part where he 
it, after the ICE journey, mm-hmm. realizes that his understanding of himself as an envoy mm-hmm. is only partial. Yeah. That he's always thought of himself as the actor who goes to this place and does a thing and he acts upon this environment. And he realizes that no, he, the environment is also acting on him. Yeah, he's also acted upon. Yeah, and and I think it's just such an interesting way of looking at this idea. And again, it's also the idea that is explored in Ender's Game, or one mm-hmm. of the ideas explored in Ender's Game. It's it, this, you know, she turns it into a whole book. Right. It's not the whole book for for Orson Scott Card, but. Yep. Um, it is funny to me that they both are looking at. In some ways, it's the theme of science fiction, right. um, or it's one of the themes. It's one. If there's yeah. an if there are or themes of science fiction, this is one of them, which yeah. is how do you understand something that is truly alien to you? And I think that we've discussed it sort of moving along this entire episode. So I will cut myself off, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we can start to wrap up. I wanted to talk about just favorite bits, um, if we haven't talked about them already. Dan. I have two favorite bits from this book that we haven't talked about. The first, the fact that there is an open trade faction among the Orgoda. As someone who is an ardent free trader, I am a big fan of that. And I do like the fact that in the end, that winds up being the sort of political machinations are such that as the uh, the more closed-minded aspects of Orgoda fall because of Genli's survival, then you have the open trade faction and that actually leads to peace. So that I was, I was kind of happy with that. And I also like the sort of descriptions, the food descriptions, particularly the food descriptions in the Arctic. You know, apparently Gathenians eat four times a day, which I heartily approve of, um, but also trying to survive under really extreme circumstances. It kind of evoked the sort of John Krakauer genre, as it were. And uh, also the things they eat, like, you know, the sour beer for breakfast. And is it apple bread? I can't re- like the... Yeah, the, I believe that's it. I think that's yeah. what it's called. Just, you know, it just seemed interesting to me. I would say that there are some good lines that I'm now flipping through the book to try and find, but there are so many, I will not cite all of them. The one I haven't mentioned is when he's speaking about being uncomfortable, and I believe one of the journeys he takes, Ginley, uh, he says to himself, I thought shivering that there are things that outweigh comfort unless one is an old woman or a cat. No, I, might I, be for me the funniest line in the book. No, I think that's the you're as right a cat about, person and an old lady. <laughs> you are not, an old lady, but 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 I, but I think that that captures something in Le Guin's writing, which you know, they're just these like landmines of wit, uh, you know, shot throughout the book. Where and it's interesting because it's mostly written about through Genley's, and I think it's the way in which you you still empathize with Genley. I mean, as we said. There's a lot that Genli doesn't get, but nonetheless, he is a relatively sharp observer of certain things. And so, you know, those sort of bon mots, as it were, is is the thing that carries the reader along to think, okay, he's not an idiot. He actually knows a fair amount of things. And I think it's one of the things that leads the reader to mistakenly assume he has a good beat on things when, in fact, he doesn't. You know who would, would have made a really good Genli? Who? Rest in power, Chadwick Boseman. Oh, he would be good. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, he would have been great in that role. I think actually we can draw from the, from uh, Black Panther also to say that um, Michael B. Jordan might also be good, but he's almost like too handsome and like too much of an alpha, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I think I was just thinking Black Panther. Chadwick Boseman is definitely has the the range. Yes. I mean, Michael B. Jordan is a great actor, one. but this is not a role I would ordinarily see him in. Uh, Dan, mm-hmm. Maybe Daniel Kaluuya. Um, oh, yes. Also. Yes. Also from Black uh, 
also by Panther. It was a, it's a very good movie. <laughs> and one of the reasons is it has an amazing cast. Yes. So I also wanted to touch on the religion in the book. There are two main religions that are portrayed. Mm-hmm. One seems a lot like Taoism. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, the had it is the religion that that uh, it's a religion that Estravan is part of. Estravan is a part of yeah. that has the the fortune the telling, which you would think yeah. no, like Taoism would be very against that. But the paradox that is the center of that religion is that you only can <laughs> predict. It's not predicting the future. Actually, I believe that they actually kind of shy away from saying it's a prediction. Well, I think what they say there's a there's a great line there where it's like we've we've developed a fine art of foretelling because we only answer useless questions. I think was the way. It was yes, put. yes, yes. That's what yes. I was going to get to. That yeah, like it yeah. is it, it. The religion is about the elimination of self, you know, in some ways, uh, and and about embracing wholeness as well. And then the other religion they don't really get into as much, but it has a central figure. And I, there's probably just like, uh, you know, I'm sure some graduate student has written a paper about the portrayal of religion yeah. in this novel. And I'll just say, when I reread it, I'm going to pay more attention to the religion hmm. um, because I think she's trying to do something there as well. And I'll just admit straight up, like, I was so interested in everything else that was going on. I'm not sure if I picked up but everything you, she put there. Yes, as you say, there is a lot going on in this book. And, and, <laughs> and you know, we know that from Le Guin's backstory, I believe she was her her she was married to an anthropologist or her, her father was her father an was an anthropologist and of some renown apparently yeah, and it, you know th- th- she has an anthropologist's eye is the way i would put it in terms of the the writing anna should we move on to the debris field uh, yes and here is where we just say whatever it is we didn't get to say before <laughs> dan why don't you go first so i'll just say two things the first thing and this is just a dumb trivia question is did george lucas come up with the sith from this book because there is a sith <laughs> that is mentioned in and it's like it's a minor name and i didn't quite you know I, I didn't investigate it but like i hadn't seen that before and so i was kind of curious about that um i doubt it yeah, that would probably be my not. answer to that is i doubt it um anything else yes there is no other way to put this i am a underliner when i read books um and you know that that is a grad student habit and it it carries over into a lot of the fiction that I read. I underline more of this book than I have in any other science fiction book I have read, um, which is a credit to Le Guin. Yes. If you're only underlining the pithy, witty quotes, you get a lot. And then if you only underline the beautiful writing, you get a lot. And there's there's just a lot of beautiful writing. Yes. No, I don't know if you have this experience on it, but there, there are times where I read books where, how would I put it? I simultaneously get angry and hopeful and like I get angry that they write so much better than I do. And I get hopeful that there might be a day where I actually manage to write a sentence that approximates it. Yes. Uh, the saying, uh, you write what you read, mm-hmm. I believe to be true. Yeah. So I'm trying to think if there's anything else. There is so much going on. I know that I probably have more to say <laughs> if I really thought about it. But we are we have we've taken up a lot of our own time. Yeah. And a lot of your time, dear listener. But we thank you for listening. Uh, so we thank you for listening. So I think we can start to wrap up. Mm-hmm. I will remind everyone uh, we have things coming up that we know we're doing, mm-hmm. which is Galaxy Quest and the Three Body Problem and Arrival. After that, things get a little fuzzier. Um, I've talked to John Scalzi about coming on the show. He has a lot of IR um, in his <laughs> books, but we're still kind of picking what we might talk about. And, you know, we're looking for suggestions and we applaud anyone that can solve the problem that we come up against about trying to talk about a TV show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I was thinking, yeah, we should do episodes. I yes. think I might might come down on that, that that would be, especially if it's a show that both of us have a general awareness about. Right, right. We you can, know? you know, Battlestar Galactica or Firefly or the Star Trek canon or what have you. We will, we will come up with something. Right. So if you have specific episodes of, of these shows, that yes. it would be a very helpful thing uh, mm-hmm. for you to put in the comments. We are at patreon.com slash space the nation. If you want to sort of follow the show or if you want to give us money, both we like money. Are, we like money. Um, we do not make money doing this no. um, right now. All of our profits go to our editor, Karen, who is awesome. Mm hmm. And we like to pay her what her market rate is, which I think we're still not quite doing. I think oh, she's dear. still giving us a bargain. Mm. But anyway, Dan and I both have great fun doing this. Yes. Do you have anything else to add, Dan? No, uh, not much, except that we are our next AMA will be uh, on April 3rd at 11 o'clock Eastern time, 10 o'clock Central. Beyond that, uh, this was a joy, Anna. You know, I thank you for suggesting the book, and I'm glad I read it. I also am, am delighted to have had this conversation. And until next time, Dan. Keep this channel open for more.